If you will, take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We continue our series from the book of the Revelation entitled The Unveiling. Today, the, the title of the message is The Bargaining Church. <clears throat> I remind you that about three weeks ago, we talked about the church at Ephesus, the backslidden church. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the church at Smyrna as being the beat-up church. And today, we're going to read about and, and think about the, the church at Pergamum, the bargaining church. If you found Revelation chapter 2, would you stand together to honor the reading of God's holy word? <clears throat> if this, these letters are in red, so there are the words of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, I know where you live where Satan's throne is. And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the sons of Israel, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who, anyone, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Father, take this portion of your word. And with your word, the sharp two-edged sword, lance our hearts. Lance our hearts in such a way that you can pour into it the salve of your presence and peace and healing in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. How many of you are bargain hunters? <laughs> now, how many of you are dishonest? Nobody wants to pay retail anymore. Everybody's always looking for the best deal they can, the lowest price they can. And yet, sometimes, does anybody know what I'm about to say? Sometimes when you go think you got a bargain, you've been busted. I'm reminded of the lady that, was, that I read about this week that was driving through the, her new community. She was trying to get the lay of the land. And uh, she saw their beauty shop. And on the beauty shop front, it said, Haircuts. Ten dollars. How about that, ladies? And she thought, I'll have to make a note of that. And as she drove on down, she said, you know, how do the other beauty shops compete with a $10 haircut? She drove down a block and a half and saw another beauty shop, and on the door of that beauty shop said, this was the advertisement, we repair $10 haircuts. 
If you've ever had a bad haircut, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You see, sometimes we think we got a deal, and it turns into a big deal and develops into an ordeal, and we have to go get some help. You see, the truth is that, that we like to get a lot for a little. We like a bargain. But bargaining, the word bargaining has another connotation, has another definition to it, and that is where you um, negotiate, you compromise. Years ago, we'd call it you would juice somebody down, but that's probably politically incorrect today. But you know what I'm talking about. You go and you haggle over the price. My first experience with this was when the quartet I was playing for went to Ores, New Mexico, and uh, we went and haggled over the price a little bit. And so, you know, sometimes it is the let's make a deal. So now, y'all know what I'm talking about? Have you gone to sleep yet? Let's make a deal. And here's what I will say to you, is that when you try to make a deal, everybody begins to haggle. When I look at the church in Pergamum, I see a church that was in the, seems to be in the, attitude of bargaining yeah they were committed to some things but there were other things that they were willing to haggle over and compromise over and negotiate to find their place in their culture may i say this to you god does not expect us to come to this culture and bargain with him he does not expect us to buy into it You see, God didn't come to take part. God doesn't come to take part. He comes to take over. This morning, I want us to look at the church at Pergamum. Because I believe this church at Pergamum, as you will hear, I believe the message of this church at Pergamum has a message for Hueytown Baptist Church as we talk about the bargaining church. I'm going to do it very simply, probably very quickly. Let's just think about four thoughts. You can write it on the back of your bulletin if you'd like. The first is the placement of the church. The placement of the church. Now, when I say the placement of the church, please know this. We are not talking about the location of a building. If I go through those seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, And Laodicea, those churches did not have buildings. In fact, no no Christian church, no church who bore the name of Christ had a building to somewhere in the early part of the 4th century when Constantine put the church. Actually, if you want to know, he uh, he took over the church and put it into the buildings. We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about a geographic location. And may I just pause a second to say, some people today have made their religion all about their building. This is my building. And you know what the truth is? The church of God is not a structural, physical structure like this. The building that the Bible speaks of when it calls it a building, a bride, and a body is the building that is being built up by the hand of God. So we're talking about the placement of the body of Christ inside this city. He says uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. I want you to hear that. In Pergamum. And he says this. Now, you, before I do that, let me, just, let me just give you a few things about Pergamum. Pergamum was a cultural city. 
It was a city of education. There were some medical schools there. It was a cultural city. There were some, there were some art centers there. It was not really on a trade route. It was kind of a highly intellectual, like one of the Ivy League places where those schools are. And, and the medical schools were there. The educational institutions were there. There was a library there that boasted over 200,000 volumes. And there was pagan worship rampant. In fact, in fact, it is into that city. He says, I know where you live. In fact, another translation uses the word dwell. I know where you dwell. And that term in the Greek does not mean a temporary residence. It means where they live permanently. It's kind of like the word seat. When you seat a president, when you seat congressman, is that it is a place of permanence. And it was into that type of place that God planted the church at Pergamum. It was a place, if you read here, that two times in verse 13 it talks about where Satan dwells and where Satan's throne is. Our Bible makes it very plain that Pergamum was in a town where evil ruled. History tells us that Pergamum was given to paganism, idolatry, and immorality. I read a story, I read a sermon by W.A. Criswell. Brother Terry had given me a book. I read a sermon by W.A. Criswell about this. And he talks about the evil, the rule of Satan that happens in the city. And he says, I know that there's evil in the countryside, but somehow in the city, in the urban areas, now remember W.A. Criswell's pastor, First Dallas, somehow in the urban areas, the evil seems to really take root. It becomes pervasive. It becomes stronger. It literally matures. In Pergamum, prostitution was a big deal. In fact, I was stunned this week to be reminded that in some of these early, early cultures like Pergamum, people could not imagine having a culture without prostitution in it. I read some of the statements which I chose not to bring to the pulpit this morning, how people just... You loved your wife to have kids, and you had your, had your prostitute for other needs. It was a way of life, decadent. But you know what? As you read history, as you observe, you know what you discover? Please listen. Don't miss this. The more intellectual we get, the more enlightened we get, the more decadent we get. The more evil we get, the more like Satan we get, the more unethical we become, the more immoral we live out. America is Exhibit A. Now, Brother Jerry, now, now may I just say this to you? We can look across America and we can see this culture falling to sin. But brothers and sisters, get you a police scanner in Hueytown, Alabama. Bill Schwartz stood on this stage Monday night. By the way, if you missed Monday night, shame on you. Bill Schwartz stood on this stage Monday night as a staff member of Valley Creek, and he said, you know what? He said, there are a lot of people in our town that need the Lord. There are people who are tied up in evil. There are people who are unchurched. There are people unsaved, and they need the Lord. But now watch. It is into just such a culture. It is in just such a situation as this that God places his 
But this is a church, as we'll talk about in a second, that had been persecuted because of their stand for God. But it's into just such a place like this that God puts his church, not the building, puts his people, his redeemed. Have you ever thought about the genius of that? We know that Jesus tells us that we're the light of the world. What better place to put the light of the world than in the darkest place? He tells us we're the salt of the earth. What better place to put salt than a place that needs healing and preserving? You see, we, first of all, Pergamon was placed here because there was decadence all around. But I want us to talk about Hueytown. Hueytown Baptist Church. What I'm about to say, some of you are not going to like. I need to tell you it's the truth so it doesn't matter. We have had many meetings over the past five and a half years. I have a little history here now. I know some of you, I'm still the new pastor. I've been here five and a half years. I have a little history now. Over the last five and a half years, we've had more than one, more than a half dozen meetings where we've talked about the auspicious beginnings of this church. Next February, it'll be 40 years ago. We talked about in more than one meeting the reputation of this church. And we talked about, I've had, I can point to the person today who said, we've had difficulty from the time we've put the first shovel in the ground. But here's what I want to tell everybody in this room today, and you can go get on the phone, and you can gossip it all day long. God has a plan for this body. And that plan is not to take care of our four and no more. God has a plan for this body that is a redemptive plan. It is a plan to reach beyond the walls of this church and reach into the decadence and the evil of our society and bring people to Jesus. God's plan is not for us to come and park on our blessed assurance on Sundays and Wednesdays and go our blessed way and complain about everything the preacher and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers are not doing when we're not doing anything. God has placed us here to do something. I love it when I really talk to you honestly. People look around like I can't get away from, I can't get, I can't wait to get out of here so I can put my own spin on this. Listen, folks, it is time for us to put up or shut up for the kingdom of God. You see, God placed, and by the way, what He has for us to do, what He has for us to do, as I said, is redemptive. We spend so much time worrying about what the church does for us that we never get involved in ministry. You say, Brother Jerry, do you know what the plan is for Hueytown Church? In a simple matter, the plan for Hueytown Church is the same today as it was five and a half years ago when I came here. It's for us to be salt and light in this world. And if we get our eyes off of ourselves, if we get our eyes off of others who we think are not doing right, and we get our eyes on the Lord, and we begin to do what He's called us to do, here's what happens. You will not have to worry about your needs being met because as you take care of other people, God will put people in your path and you'll be taken care of and it won't be selfish. Take care of me. 
God has placed us here. And there is a ministry for this church to be to form. We can't be Valley Creek. We can't be Pleasant Ridge. We can't be Hunter Street. We can't be First Gardendale. But we can be the best Hueytown Baptist Church that we can be if we'll quit looking at ourselves and realize where we've been placed and put our eyes on Him. This church at Pergamum was placed, watch, where Satan's throne is and where Satan lives. Brothers and sisters, let us consider where God has placed us today. Let us consider seriously what God has not placed us to do. He's not placed us here to sit and soak. He's not placed us here to complain. He's not placed us here to criticize. He's not placed us here to straighten out somebody else. He's placed us here to be him in this community, the placement of the church. But if we go back to the church at Pergamon, we can then move to the perseverance of the church. The perseverance of the church. This church had to endure some difficult things. They knew persecution firsthand. I mean, read about it. It says, and you're holding on to my name and did not deny your faith, even in the days of Antipas. Now, we don't know a lot about Antipas, but he tells us, he says, Antipas was my faithful witness. And he was killed among you. History tells us that Antipas was not the pastor. He was like one of the lay leaders, the elders, the deacons. And as I've read history, they put Antipas into what, what equates to being an iron bull. Hollow iron bull. Put him over a fire and roasted him. And he could have gotten out of it if he had just said, Caesar's Lord. In fact, your history will tell you that Stephen was the first martyr that the Jews put to death after Jesus. And Antipas was the first one that the Romans put to death. And he says, even in the face of all this persecution, you persevered and you didn't deny my name. And you didn't deny my faith. I want you to think about that. We haven't had any persecution yet like I think we're facing in the next years. And yet we tend to back away from his name. We tend to deny his faith. How do we deny our faith in him? Have you ever thought about all the ways? It's not going to be up here. I chose not to put it up here. So you can listen right here. If you want to write it down, you can. I suggest you two or three ways that we can deny our faith and how we do deny our faith on a weekly basis. First, we can remain silent about him. Isn't it interesting I don't know anybody in this room has trouble talking. And yet probably know a number of people that have said, I can't talk about the Lord. You see, when we remain silent, we, we do not take the opportunity to speak a word on his behalf. We've denied his name. If you, please listen, personal, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you are an authentic follower of Christ, let me tell you what's happened since last Sunday. God has put someone in your path this week 
that needed a word of grace, that needed a word of truth, that needed a word of gospel. They were looking to you. They knew that you were a member of a Huey Town church, and they were just waiting for you to open your mouth and say something, and you remained silent. You know what's so sad? Quite likely, of all the people you encountered this week, at least half of them were just waiting for someone to invite them to a service just like this. And you remain silent. You see, when we remain silent, we deny His name. And you remember what He says? You deny me before men? I'll deny you before my Father when it counts. You see, the way we deny our faith is to, first of all, we can just be silent. The second way is we can replace the, or exchange the gospel. Now you go, wait a minute, Brother Jerry, I don't think I'm going to replace the gospel. There's probably another person in this room say, I'm going to replace the gospel or, or I'm going to exchange the gospel, I'm going to make it different. But don't we do that? Don't we do that when we go, well, I know what the Bible says, but what I really believe is, Oops. Let me tell you something. The Bible means what it means. You may not like what the Bible says about not, ha- not being able to be a pastor as a woman. You may not like what the Bible has to say about sexual sins, about immorality and those perversions. You may not even like, you may be an Oprah fan, and you may believe like her that they just cannot be only one way to heaven. And you want to change it. Well, so what? I may not like that Jesus had to leave heaven and come to earth and die for my sins so brutally. If you change your part, can I change my part? And the answer is a resounding no. When we change one word of the gospel, one word, then we change it all. Have you ever had an epiphany? You listening, Alan? An epiphany, you know what that is? That's a life-changing event. This week, two of our men were sitting in my office. And we were talking about the church and things. One of them made a start. I don't, I really, when it rolled off his lips, I'm sitting there stunned. Because of the implications. This is what he said. He said, you know, as best I can, I try to live my life around my love for the Lord. Now, this isn't verbatim. I didn't record it. I'm telling you generally what he said. I try to live my life around what I believe God wants me to do since I'm his and around the church. He said, but I fear too many in this church try to just piece God into my life. Piece God in. Instead of, instead of having your life rotate around what God has done for you and Him and His service, you just try to... We've got so many things going on. We've got, we got the ball field. We've got the civic club. We got this, we got that, and we just kind of piece God into our lives. I just want to say that to you, this to you. You have replaced what God called for. He said, I will be Lord of all or I will not be Lord at all. It is time for us 
to wake up and quit bargaining with the world. This church persevered, and, and they persevered by not denying the faith. And how do we deny the faith? We can be silent. We can replace the gospel. And finally, we can deny the faith by abandoning it. Turning and walking away from it. How many people do you know? How many people do you know that have turned their backs on God? I look around and it's no secret. Attendance is down. I've always been amazed at... I've always been amazed at when, even as a staff person and now as a pastor... When somebody don't like the pastor, they leave. But that doesn't amaze me. You know what amazes me? They don't go to another church. They go home. Hello? What does that say about your commitment to the Lord? Turning your back on Him? I have a friend, an acquaintance actually, a pastor, and I heard him Heard him more than once standing in the pulpit and says, My way or the highway? I've never said that to you guys. All I'm trying to do is stand on God's word. That's all I try to do is stand on God's word. And you see, when we turn and we run away, we abandon the faith. We deny his name. If you deny his name here, he'll deny you over there. This church had resisted the Pergamum church had resisted the temptation to turn. And they had remained faithful to him. What I will tell you about people who turn and walk away, you think about it. I'm thinking, I'm thinking back to my high school days, the youth group. In fact, it's, I've been really blessed as I've gotten on Facebook and connected up with some of my old classmates, some of them who left the Lord in their 20s and 30s and 40s. That scripture is true. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. And have seen them come back to the Lord. But I think about the number of people I was in school with, Brother Terry, people I was in school with, who started out strong and turned their back and walked away. And you know, I've discovered today as I've talked to some of those folks, they're very lonely people. They're miserable people. Oh, they may have made millions. They may have made millions. But they're very lonely, very miserable, because they didn't persevere. This church persevered. And even though they persevered in the face of persecution, I want you to see the predicament of the church. Number three, the predicament of the church. Jesus said, you know, you've done all these good things and you've done them well. And I believe that we're getting to the place where we're talking about the bargaining church. I mean, these guys were commended of the Lord by just staying faithful, by not denying the name. And, and, and even they're staying faithful in the face of deep persecution. But, now watch this, they had allowed doctrinal problems to come into their church. Now everybody's going to go to sleep about now because you don't, you don't like, nobody likes to talk about doctrine anymore. Doctrine is not important. Well, sure it is. And it's also doctrine is not as boring as we've made it. Do you know everybody in this room has a doctrine? The doctrine of Philip. That's the doctrine you live your life by. 
The doctrine of Wendell, that's the doctrine you live your life by. The doctrine of Buford, that's the doctrine you live your life by. You see, we as Christians are called to live by the doctrine of Christ. We're called to live by His doctrine. As a church, we're called to operate by His doctrine. And in the church of Pergamum, here they come. They start bargaining just a little bit. If you look here, they go, There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And our, in our church today, there's a big, in our denomination today, there's a big brouhaha about Calvinism. Five points. That's called, it's really Reformed theology, but it's tied to John Calvin's name. I have my own five points, some issues that I have with John Calvin, and people will say, well, you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was there when it started. It'll be there. He knows everything about everything. But I will refuse to accept any theology that's tied to the name of a man. We'll just stay right here. These folks had tied, tied into the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam. If you remember, you can go back and read this afternoon, Numbers 21 to 31. You'll find about Balaam. The uh, uh, Balak had hired Balaam to come in and curse the people of Israel. And every time he'd open his mouth to curse, words came out like he didn't want. Because every time he tried to curse the children of Israel, God's people, God put the words there and it was a blessing. One preacher said, what God blesses, no man can curse. Probably true. So you know what Balaam did? He is Baptist. He found a way around God. And he went back and he told Balaam, he said, you know, I can't do anything about this. And this is the watch um, transliteration. It's not anything divine or inspired. He went back and he said, look, Balaam, here's what you can do. Have your young men begin to look at those Moabite women. They were good looking. There's no big temptation to a young man like a young woman. See, God said, hands off. And Balaam said, you can, you can get them to start receiving those Moabite women to take them as wives, and you'll find that the culture dissolves. Oh, folks, do you, does it take your pastor to see that application of today? Now, nobody will fight maybe the Word of God head on, but what we do is we go in, into the... I have people who, Jude says, creep in, and they give their little remarks, and they, and they try to pull the heart down until, you're, until the whole of the church fellowship, like that whole of the country, was dissolved. They would eat meat. Sacrificed idols. That's another story, another message for another time. But what we can understand today is about how the sexual immorality compromised the people. And then they said the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've already visited the doctrine of Nicolaitans a couple of weeks ago. But let me, let me tell you something that I didn't tell you then. Nicolaitan. You, know, you want to know where that comes from? Well, the root word is Nike. The root word is Nike. Who do you think of in American sports when you see the word Nike? Tiger Woods. Winner. I know he has, his, has a lot more problems than we need to get into here. But on the golf course for years, he was the dominating victor. 
And so you have, the, you have Nike. And then you have the word laos. That word Nike literally means victory, winner. And then you have the word laos, which is the word for people, those winning people, those people who are a higher echelon. So now you have people who are really above others, people who have won out over others, people who exalt themselves over others. The Nicolaitans were those who sought to oppress and conquer other folks, to intimidate other people, to use other people for their gain. It's, it's rumored in history that the Nicolaitans came from Nicholas, who was one of the original seven mentioned in Acts chapter 6. You see, the truth is, the truth is, these two doctrines, the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of Nicolaitan. By the way, is that when you read about the, those two doctrines and you read the book of Jude, and everybody can read the book of Jude, you come to find out that Jude was a prophet in his own time. As people have crept in, the church unaware promoted them into the church. And all they did was cause problems. But stay with me. I've got one more thing. Gosh, where'd the time go? You're not listening fast enough. There's one more thing about this predicament of this church. Pergamum, the name itself. When I discovered this, it stunned me. Pergamus. Pergamus. The prefix of that per in the, in the original language means object, objectionable, per. The gummus means marriage. You find it in polygamy. You find it in bigamy. So you know what you find out about this church at Pergamum? You have an, object, an, objectable, an objectionable marriage. Let me just put it to you in these words. It talks about the church at Pergamum being married to the world. The church at Pergamum being married to the culture. How does this resemble the church of the 21st century in America? Trying to become more like the culture so we can be acceptable. You see, we're not to become like the culture. We're to, we're to change the culture to become like us. Last week in the message down at, in Pascagoula, here's what I want to share with you today, folks. The church is to be the thermostat in the culture not the thermometer in the culture. All the thermometer does is, is notate what the temperature is. The thermostat is what controls what the temperature is. You see, we're not to be a bargaining church. We're to be a church of the living God. When we bargain with the world, we become acceptable to the world and, unaccept and unacceptable to Christ. Did you hear that? We become like the church at Pergamum. We, we bargain with the world. We might become acceptable to the world, but we become unacceptable to Christ. And having said all these things, I want you to see the last thing. The possibilities for the church. The possibilities for the church. And I want to begin by saying, I want you to notice that these possibilities 
they do speak to the church collectively. But it speaks to the church member, that believer, individually. He says down in verse 17, anyone. He does not say any church. He does not say anybody, any building, any bride. He says anyone. Anyone who has an ear should listen. And then that word listen is the idea that you listen, you hear, and you respond. Sadly today in the Baptist Church of America, there are plenty of people who will sit and listen and call themselves hearing. But do we respond? You see, the very reason we sit and listen is to have a lifestyle change I'm reminded when I read that word anyone I'm reminded that God still looks on the heart the heart of the individual as we look back in Revelation 1 those eyes of fire they're looking to our hearts to see who we are he's looking to see if we're going to respond with a heart of obedience he's looking to see if we have him first place in our life Right now, he's looking in our hearts, and he's wondering, and he knows whether we're more concerned that it's 1110, the preacher hadn't quit, or whether I'm listening to what he's got to say to me. You see, look here. If you've got your Bible, anyone who has an ear should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Watch this. He begins by saying... I will give the victor. You see, the first possibility is that you become an overcomer. That's the word used. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. Did you hear that? Hidden manna. You know what part of our problem is today? In our enlightened age, we think we've got God all figured out. We think we know everything that's going to go on from now until we rest into the throne. We think there is nothing hidden from us. May I just say this? We still see in a glass darkly. It's only then we'll see face to face. He says, I'll give you hidden manna if you will stick with it, if you will overcome. If you will not become a bargaining church, if you will stay with the course, I will be there with you all the way. And I will give you things beyond your wildest dreams. And yet, sadly, too, many of us are not really concerned about the promise of something in the future. And then he says, I will give you a stone and I will inscribe your name. It'll be a, a new name. It'll be a name nobody now calls you by but me. My wife, I'm going to get in trouble with this. My wife is the king or the queen since she's a woman of new names. We named our children Christian Jonathan. Neither one of them go by Christy or Jonathan in our house. If you want to know what they go by, I am not telling you because I'll get dead. But it is a pet name. You see, that's what God has for everyone who overcomes. That's the possibility for the church. How much more personal can God make His grace than to say He's giving you a pet name? Then He's inscribing it on a stone. Then he'll give you hidden manna if you'll stay the course. But, we're done. But, there is a contingency. 
And it's found in our scripture. If you want all this, you need to hear that it's the message of Jesus. It was the message of John the Baptist. It was the message of Peter. And it is the message that will be proclaimed as long as this world is in, is in existence. Verse 16. Therefore, repent. Wait a minute, Brother Jerry, I don't like that word. God doesn't care. The message is repent. Brother Jerry, do you realize what that causes me to do? Yep. Repent. Brother Jerry, I, you know, I love what I'm doing. Repent. Brother Jerry, I... But first of all, it's not Brother Jerry. It's God. You see, if we're going to, if we're going to graduate and not be the bargaining church that lets false doctrine, that lets us not deny the name of Christ, it's going to be because we repent. That was the message of Jesus. That is the message of today. Some of us need to repent and be saved. Brother Jerry, I've been a church member for 45 years. Not the question. I've taught Sunday school 15 years. Not the question. I was going to church when you were a little boy. Not the question. It is what have you done with Jesus? Well, Brother Jerry, I got baptized. Well, that's not the question. The question today is, have you repented of your sin and invited Christ into your life, and does he walk with you daily? That's the question. And until you and I answer that question, there are no other questions pertinent. Let's pray together.